It's Tuesday, August 21st, and this is The Daily Dive. School is back in session, and while better test scores may be at the top of the list for many administrators, security is also key. With the latest instances of violence in schools, no one wants to be the next. So schools are mining students' social media posts for signs of trouble. Tom Simonite, senior writer at Wired, joins us to talk about the companies that are diving into students' socials in an effort to keep kids safe. Next, it's finally come to this. Doctors may soon be prescribing playtime. A new report by the American Academy of Pediatrics is recommending more playtime for kids as a way to build everyday life skills that they will need as adults. Melissa Healy, health reporter for the LA Times, joins us to discuss the latest advice from doctors on how to raise a successful kid, and it all starts with playtime. Finally, as talk of trade wars and tariffs dominate the news, you might be surprised to find out what one of America's hottest exports is. Because of high supply and regulations regarding the industry, American sperm is in high demand. So is Danish sperm. Sue Yoon, journalist and contributor to The Garden, joins us to break down the laws and why America is so popular. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. At Social Sentinel, we provide insights into potential threats being shared on social media worldwide. As we started in schools, it quickly became apparent that it's not possible for a school to manually search for those potential indicators of harm. Not just the sheer volume, but also knowing what to look for. Joining us now is Tom Simonite, senior writer for Wired. As schools are heading back into session, a lot of school districts are turning to big data analytics. They want to examine social media posts. Everybody wants to deter violence. Nobody wants another school shooting on their hands. So they're examining social media posts for the earliest signs of depression, resentment, isolation, notions of violence, threats, anything like that. And they're using these algorithms and these new security companies to help with that. What do we know about that, Tom? If you think about it, this is a totally rational strategy. I'm sure that lots of times there's an incident in school and the teachers sit the kids down. Someone's Instagram post or Twitter message or Facebook post probably gets mentioned a lot of the time. People of all ages today live a portion of their lives online. And so schools, to better help students and figure out what's going on in their buildings, they want to mine that signal that's out there on social media. Now, they can't take the time to sit down and read through everyone's feed. And so there are these companies who are offering services where they will automatically monitor all the posts out there and they promise to flag posts that you might need to know about as a school administrator. A lot of uh, security options going back to other school violence incidences have all relied on, you know, cameras, security sensors, more officers, things like that. But the social media monitoring is really trying to flag these things before it actually happens. You spoke to a couple of schools for your article about solutions that they're using. One of the ones that they use is Firestorm Solutions, a company out of Georgia that does this social media monitoring. What do they do? How does it work? Firestorm's an interesting company. They actually have their origins in the Virginia tech shooting. They were the company that came in and help manage the cleanup operation and help all the students and that kind of thing. They have a long history of working with schools and educational institutions on security and crisis management. And then they started up this social media monitoring solution more recently. I think it was inspired by how in the wake of these violent incidents in schools, often people will dig through the perpetrator's history and, and find these posts on social media. And that naturally raises the question, well, could we have prevented this? And so at a high level, the strategy they use is they have 
software that ingests all the tweets, public Instagram posts. Sometimes they look at YouTube as well. And they're kind of looking for keywords or particular patterns of language that might suggest someone is very depressed or stressed or threatening another person. Maybe they're looking for mentions of weapons. And then they also look for some connection between the post and the particular school that they're trying to help out. So that might be a mention of the school or a tweet might come from an account that's tagged to the location where the school is. And then if a post triggers all these little rules, then it will be forwarded to the school and staff get to see it and decide what to do from that. You spoke to the superintendent of uh, Lakeview School District in Michigan. His name is Blake Pruitt, and he gets like a bunch of emails every day, basically, with social media posts that are flagged for potential violations, I guess, if you can call them. He even says, you know, I don't mind getting all these things. I'd rather know about it than not to see it and then, you know, have a situation on our hands later. That's right. So Superintendent Pruitt has a few thousand students in his school district and about 500 staff, and he wants to keep them safe. He's worked on physical security at his schools. He's worked on crisis management plans. They have cameras. And he sees that as this is the next step fitting in with that. You know, he likes to be aware of what's happening in his community. And he said that he will get on the order of about 20 emails in the morning and flagging different posts and he'll go through them. He finds it a valuable way to know what's going on. And he was able to give a few examples of how it has helped. So he mentioned a case when um, there was some police activity outside one of his schools regarding an attempted abduction of an adult. And it didn't directly involve any of the school children or staff, but he was able to reach out to the police and offer to look at their security cameras and help. So, you know, he thought that was a good example. There is some debate, though, over how accurate or how ethical these things are. Sometimes you'll get a false positive. Sometimes you'll get some false negatives, uh, you know, accusing kids or somebody of doing something that that maybe they were really weren't intending to do. That's right. And so a lot of us will have direct experience of this. And there's a lot of research that backs it up. The way school kids and teenagers use social media is it's a very intense, like personal and social space that is very specific to people's individual lives. And so if you're an outsider looking in there, you may not understand really what's going on. You don't know the backstory, you don't know the context. And there's a phrase that people who research this stuff use called context collapse. This is the idea that if you take one post in isolation out of the buzzing marketplace of ideas, that you as an outsider, you don't understand. Like the context has collapsed, it's gone away, and you may not know what's really happening. Some people worry that if these tools aren't used correctly, school staff may end up seeming a bit overbearing and reaching out to kids too frequently or misinterpreting what they're reading, and, and that could change the atmosphere in a school. The other question is, should kids be notified that their social media is being monitored? A lot of times, they'll even make fake profiles to throw off their parents so they don't know what's going on. A couple of researchers who have studied young people in social media told me they thought that schools should inform the children if they're using a system like this. The companies had a different view. The way they put it is that if you post something publicly on the internet, then anyone in the world can look at it. And so there's not necessarily an obligation for a school to disclose what it's doing. The counter argument to that is that these are young people who their brains, their social presences, their lives are still developing. And if you really want to care for them, you should respect that they may not necessarily understand what their privacy settings mean or they may be using social media channels as a semi-private space with their friends. And that if you're going to be as an authority with some power in their life, if you're going to be looking into that, then you should be open about it. Tom Simonite, senior writer for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
All over America, kids are bored to death. They're sitting in class for eight hours straight and staring. There's no passion. Kids can't move, can't get their endorphins flowing. So I think it's wonderful. The only advice I would give the school, instead of just doing recess 40 minutes a day, get the kids moving during the class time as well. Joining us now is Melissa Healy, health reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Well, it's finally come to this. The American Academy of Pediatrics has said that doctors should be prescribing playtime for young children. This is an effort to get their cognitive abilities moving a little bit better. Every life skill that they will need as adults will benefit as a result of good playtime when they're children. What did this report say? First, the backdrop. It comes at a time when it's quite clear that the nation's pediatricians believe that the very notion that kids ought to be given time to play seems to be under assault at a time when they have screen time vying for their attention and students are under pressure to engage in academic skills and drills at school rather than go out for recess. There is a clear sense among the pediatricians that there's no no time left for free play. And that, they suggest, is really a loss, that kids who don't play are kids who are not going to grow up to develop in a healthy way. A lot of these recommendations are as much for the parents as they are for the kids. It's like almost giving them the okay to be comfortable with letting their kids do this. Follow your instincts. If you see your kids having fun with something, let them have that unstructured play. Don't feel the need to allot time for it. We all know that parents feel pretty fretful these days. Obviously, they want the best for their kids. They want to give them every leg up in life that they can. And they're fretting over, you know, which toys to buy and which apps to download and which skill building programs, violin lessons, ballet lessons, kung fu. And the result is that kids can't go home and and climb a tree. They can't use a banana as a telephone or a sticks as swords. And there is no time for kind of imagination and making it up as they go along. I was a kung fu kid (laughs) when I was younger. You're saying this kind of this uh, exploration with just everyday things in your backyard. Quick side story, when I was a kid, there was a tree that our neighbors had and I would cut down big branches and I'd use weed whacker line and I'd fashion little bow and arrows and I'd be practicing in my backyard with my makeshift archery set and I loved it. You know, I got cardboard and made little bullseyes and I was practicing from across the yard making these things. And you know, it was me for hours at a time just in the backyard all by myself having some fun. So it's important. I learned how to do it on my own, basically, yeah. just out of a necessity, just because yeah. I wanted I mean, to play. You know, the idea is that it fosters creativity, as obviously was the case in your case. It, it fosters ingenuity. When kids play together and they're making it up, there's this back and forth that lays the groundwork for a lifetime in which they'll be working one day in teams. The last time we had you on the podcast was specifically to talk about how much kids are spending on their screens. What did they say in this report in relation to that? I mean, kids are spending, uh, what is that, an average of two hours and 19 minutes in front of screens each day. These are children up through the age of eight. The trend is definitely that younger and younger kids are spending more and more time in front of a screen, whether it's an iPhone or a television or a computer, and they're basically playing games. And You know, what you will often see is see a parent hand their kid an iPhone when it looks like there's going to be a wait in the grocery line or something, and the kid will start playing a game on the smartphone. Or at a restaurant. Here, look at this, uh, so we can all eat comfortably. You know, the idea that pediatricians want to begin to seed in parents' minds are, look, this is an opportunity you should not pass up to 
play a game with the apples and the bananas you're buying? Could you build a face or a counting game or anything that would basically provide the opportunity to have some give and take between parent and child that is playful and that it's not only relationship building and it's not only skill building, it's fun. Don't be afraid to take it back a little old school. The only other problem that I kind of see with some of this is that when I was younger, I think my parents felt very comfortable saying, go out and play, go ride your bike around a little bit. And increasingly, parents are a little more worried about letting their kids go out unsupervised. If you don't live next to a park or something, where are you going to go to play besides the front yard or the backyard? Right. So I think right. that's also a concern for a lot of parents. The argument was precisely, look, this is important for all kids. It happens to be particularly important for kids who face adversity of all sorts in the course of their young lives, including poverty. And those are precisely the kids, of course, who may live in neighborhoods where being told to go out and play is not an option. There's not a nearby park or there's not a park that a parent feels safe to have their kids go to. There aren't easy answers for that. But one of them actually, which was cited in the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation, was that pediatricians should also be advocating for more public play. And there are a lot of for instance, cities that are instituting these very innovative games that they'll have installed, for instance, at a bus stop or at a park, and a kid will be able to turn on... It, they're the sorts of games you might find, for instance, in a children's museum that are kind of interactive and that allow the kid to, say, press a button, turn on some lights, that will project on the ground and whatever, play hopscotch, count the light, do whatever. So the idea is not only to encourage parents to uh, let their children play, but also encourage cities, schools to install and support opportunities for children and their parents to do playful things together. Melissa Healy, health reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. I am a family creator. I'm a life changer. I am a dream maker. I'm a California cryobank donor. I wanted to become a donor because I wanted to help families. Family has always felt really important to me. Being a father myself, being able to help other people have their own families always felt really good. The California Cryobank's been around for a long time. In 40 years, they've helped families create 75,000 beautiful children. Joining us now is Sue Yoon, journalist and contributor to The Guardian. We're going to be talking about the hottest American export. It might not be what you think it is. It's actually sperm. (laughs) I saw that and I just had a laugh and I had to talk to you about it. You start off your story with a woman in Australia who was looking for a donor. She wanted to freeze some fertilized embryos. She found less than 10 donors locally there and her doctor recommended to her that she go American. I was shocked when she was telling me the story. She was saying that she was going to turn 40 soon. She has to figure out what to do with these embryos. When I asked who the father was, she said, it's some American. And locally in Australia, there's not enough sperm to meet demand. A lot of countries, unlike the U.S., don't pay for sperm donations. So it has to be done, quote unquote, altruistically. And a lot of countries also limit the amount of families a donor can supply. And in this case, one of the points he made was that American sperm tends to be younger and, it, and you could have a more successful fertilization. So she accessed a website with American Australian sperm and the guy she chose was American. It was a funny story. She ended up asking her father to help out. 
they both chose the same guy. It was a 23-year-old American who said that he wanted to become a donor because he wanted to spread his awesome genes throughout the world. The demand for sperm in the United States is on the rise. It's not just the American stuff. It's they want sperm from Denmark, as you were saying. One of the simple reasons is just because there's a lot of it coming out of these two countries. So tell us about California Cryobank and Cryos in Denmark. These are the top two sperm banks in the world right now. I was talking to a guy, Ayo Wahlberg, who you quoted my story, and he actually just wrote a book on the world's biggest sperm bank, which he says is in China, biggest sperm bank and fertility center, but they don't export. Right. So the, the biggest exporter countries are the U.S. and Denmark. And it's interesting because this is not a product that's regulated uniformly across the world, and it's not really regulated in the U.S. So we don't really know. There's no national register of sperm donors. It's information held by private sperm banks. But in the field of people who write books about sperm banks, it's Cryos and it's California Cryobank. And both of them would each tell me they were the biggest. There's a little, me- a little rivalry between them even. Uh, I think Cryos, the one from Denmark, was saying, you know, if you want anything in Europe, we own Europe. You know, yeah. <laughs> come to us. Exactly. And when I was talking to California Cryobank, they said, we're the biggest by far. And I and I said, what by what metric? And they said, by any metric. You know, and at one point he said, even square footage. <laughs> one of the people I quoted in the story from Seattle Sperm Bank wrote to me said, well, they might be the biggest, but they're not the best. <laughs> so it is, you know, on a cellular level, some things do still replicate. These are two countries that still allow for anonymous donation, although California Cryobank right. has actually told me they're moving away from that. And that is why they're able to have a lot of sperm on reserve. What is the reason for them changing to non-anonymous donations now? That seemed like one of the big pluses is that for women, maybe lesbian couples that wanted to use this, they didn't necessarily need interaction with the father. They, you know, they wanted to start their own family on their own. So an anonymous thing kind of would work for them. California, at least, is saying that more than half of their client base now is single women by choice and lesbian couples. And those are families that the children, it's no secret that you use a sperm donor. You're not there because you have fertility issues. Questions about paternity and the biological father's identity are kind of natural. And, and that population does tend to want to know about the donor. Previously, artificial insemination started with infertile heterosexual couples. And people didn't want people to know they use a sperm donor. And they like to have a donor whose physical traits match the fathers or wouldn't give rise to questions. And now it's kind of opened up the market in terms of, well, people already know it's not a secret that there's a sperm donor involved. And one of the things that one of the experts is saying to me is that they're not as particular about like having a certain look. One of the women I quoted in the story, she is Dutch and Anglo, and, and she did say she felt a little bit weird about thinking sperm. There was an African-American donor that she was really interested in. And she ultimately decided not to go that way because she felt like she was bringing a child in the world who would already have a, quote, unconventional childhood. And she Mm -hmm. felt like if she stayed within her race, that there would be less questions. One of the interesting things that figures into this whole thing are the laws dictating how many families or children a single donor can provide. In the UK, one donor can only endow 10 families domestically. And the US has no limit on anything like that. So that's why they're in higher demand. A market that where the demand is fed by the supply, really. We don't have laws regulating that. I think some sperm banks with 25 is the number I heard thrown out a lot, 25 families. And those numbers are designated by population. The reason they have those limits is they're afraid of potential incest with half siblings. And actually, I was just at the gym the other day, and a 21-year-old, who I didn't think would have any exposure to sperm donations being so young, said that she has a friend who knows she's a sperm donor baby. And then this woman I met was in Israel at a party, met someone who looked exactly like her friend, showed them pictures, 
And so they looked identical and asked this woman, were you by any chance a sperm donor baby? And she was. And she thinks she found this woman's half-sibling wow. in Israel. <laughs> and she knows her from New York. I mean, all these yeah. factors really, there's a large supply. The, the laws are a little lax. All this really makes for the case that why sperm from the United States is in such high demand. Sue Yoon, journalist and contributor to The Guardian, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>